0: Welcome to the Zeitgeist 19 curated podcast, exploring the spirit of now through the lens of art and sustainability. Your hosts are Farah Pirie and Elizabeth Zhufkova. Following our crucial episode with the British artist Pierre Secunda structured around the idea of art as a social vehicle that shifts conversations on diplomatic arena and Secunda's body of work that is focusing on the iconoclastic acts of the extremist groups, we dive deeper into the topic to further discuss the questions of greatest concern related to the destruction of culture, restitution of museum objects and the market for looted artefacts. Hi, Piers. Welcome back to Zeitgeist 19. It is always a pleasure to have you here, and thank you so much for your time. Um, Our last episode with you raised a lot of interest and questions from our audience, and we were asked to expand on some of the themes that were covered then. And I have three questions for you, which we would love to unfold further. At the moment, one of your installations, a large-scale commission, is being exhibited at the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, as part of the Owning the Past from Mesopotamia to Iraq exhibition. We spoke about the work in our previous episode, but I have some further questions. Why has the Ashmolean, the oldest museum in the world, organized an exhibition about the creation of the nation-state of Iraq and included within it an installation about the destruction of culture? which is your work.
1: Thank you, um, Farah. Pleasure to be able to speak to you again for Zeitgeist 19. Um, I will dive straight into trying to answer that question. Um, The Ashmolean Museum is one of the oldest institutions in the world, museum institutions, if not the oldest. And it is um, a collection of collections. They were given, the collections accumulated by various different people, academics mostly, who traveled and archaeologists who traveled, worked in the Middle East, North Africa, far and wide in fact, and accumulated volumes of what were known at the time in the 18th century as musea, objects for study and examination effectively. And when the collection of collections accumulated, at oxford university to such a scale or on such a scale that the university felt it was necessary to construct a building to house them somebody suggested oh well a building housing a museum would be a museum and therefore this is what we will be building and it will house all these artifacts objects of interest which have been gifted not just uh, to the museum directly but sometimes to important people in the UK, who then over time, and sometimes their families, have given these collections to the museum. So that makes uh, for a rather complicated situation, in as much as that the museum wasn't founded by an individual who could have, say for example, collected all the receipts for purchases of objects, wherever they may have come from, uh, which means that in, if you fast forward to uh, the 21st century and you cast an eye across the Ashmolean Museum's collections, you realize that because of the multiple different sources, it's very difficult on many of the objects to understand exactly how they came to be in the UK. That in itself is a fascinating uh, and a very strange grey area, which is highly topical at the moment, because there's a lot of pressure on museums in the UK to consider returning objects to their countries of origin. Now for things which have a receipt, it's easy to say, oh, this was legitimately purchased in Cairo in 1962, and therefore it belongs legitimately and legally to the museum, and there's no concern in saying, Here it is, it's on display, we own it, it's part of our collections. Um, In examining what the museum owns, especially in relation to Iraq, in particular because the anniversary, the 100th anniversary of the creation of the nation state of Iraq has just passed, the museum decided that they were going to firstly put on an exhibition which examines the end of the First World War, the separation of the borders of what became known as Jordan and Iraq by what originally was called the Sykes-Picot Agreement and then went through several drafts and was changed and um, formulated in such a way that the borders as they stand now exist. Um, And that examination is effectively uh, a look into the nature of the British Empire as a global and and the French uh, Empire uh, as global forces which effectively defined the creation of the modern middle east why did that happen how did it happen who who did it involve who were the players who was advising what knowledge did they genuinely have and who was removed from the equation by the decisions that they made so all of those questions are attempted to be answered within this exhibition, Owning the Past. Um, to bring the story up to date, the curator of the exhibition, Paul Collins, decided that there should be something in the exhibition. Thankfully, he decided it was gonna be a work of mine, and so I've made this commissioned work for him and for the museum, uh, which would bring the story up to date. And so, in some regards, you can draw a line in, on, along a historic plane, from the end of the First World War to the current, and you can show how the the cross-sectioning of tribal territories in modern-day Iraq and the breakup of their tribal lands contributes to some of the instability right up to the present day, which would include ISIS. So it's a a very, very far-reaching exhibition in that, The historic side is meshed together with the contemporary. So, the work which I've made for this exhibition uh, effectively takes molds produced by myself inside the Mosul Museum in 2018 of the broken stone texture of Assyrian sculptures smashed inside that museum by ISIS when they took Mosul in 2014. And those molds were merged with a 3D print of the Ashmolean's Assyrian relief and the resulting installation consists of around 1,600, 1,600 objects which make the Assyrian relief in the entrance of the the Ashmolean Museum look like it's been destroyed by ISIS.
0: Museums are indeed under pressure at the moment, which yep. is one of the biggest discussions that uh, has been going on in the art world for decades now. As yep. What are your feelings your feelings about the restitution of objects to the nations where they uh, originated?
1: Well, it's a very complicated question to answer. Uh, it appears to be very simple um, until you start trying to work out what the um, approach Would be to dealing with these things. So, what I've really realized over the course of time is that none of this is simple. It is not a black and white issue in any way at all. And I'm going to give you a number of examples of that. But the most important thing to understand is that, as far as I'm concerned, is that every single object, if it's going to be restored back to its uh, source country, has to be examined in tremendous depth. And the reasons are, for example, if we take modern day Egypt, Egypt in the 21st century, what you have in Egypt is a situation where the, uh, the origin city, the place of birth of, I'm gonna give one example of one object that's sort of in question and, and the complexities around it. The place of birth of Nefertiti in Egypt now has a very grand museum. The bust of Nefertiti came from Egypt and now lives in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. So that object, as I understand it, was purchased. You'd think, well, how is that possible? Something so important as the bust of the Queen of Egypt, how can that end up in Germany? Well, this is where it starts to become really complicated and not for the reasons that you might initially suspect, Up until 1983, you could go to Egypt and you could buy antiquities, not just from vendors who were licensed in the street, but you could also buy antiquities from the shop of the Cairo Museum. Why? Because it was sanctioned, because there were such vast quantities of objects scattered around and being retrieved through archaeological digs that. The authorities said, well, this is a fabulous source of income. Let's license the process of selling them and allow people to buy them. We'll give them an export license, which is crucial, and a receipt, equally crucial. So if you fast forward again to the 21st century, go back to that Nefertiti bust. There's a license that says that this can leave Egypt. There's a receipt that says that somebody's paid for it. So how do you now say, after 1983, when that licensing regulation ended, how do you now say that that thing which was bought completely legitimately should be in this museum in Egypt? Suddenly becomes an extremely complex argument. And if you were to take that case to court, you'd have terrible difficulty fighting it because it was legitimately, legitimately purchased and legitimately exported. So to add to this, Very strange conversation. What you also have in this mix is a combination of outside Egypt, the values of objects being four to five times more or greater. If the receipt is intact and in the possession of owner, then the object would be if there was no receipt. So that means that you have a viable market for antiquities outside Egypt which doesn't exist present day in Egypt because you can no longer export. And those receipts and export licenses no longer exist. So, for example, if you have an object, uh, uh, let's choose something else, a stele, for example, and you take it to an ancient antiquities dealer and you say, well, my great grandmother bought this in the 1950s in Egypt from this particular vendor uh, at this very well-known antiquities shop. And here's the receipt that goes with it the value of it for sale is going to be four to five times more than if there was no receipt, right? Added to to that dynamic is the possibility that it's simply too dangerous to return things to Egypt, okay? So I'm not going to name names, but there is an NGO which operates in England, is managed from England, and it services the deficit in pay of Egyptian museum employees. So what they're doing is they're topping up the pay of Egyptian museum employees. Why? Well, there are many reasons why museum employees wouldn't be paid in the way that they're supposed to be. One is that, for example, probably the most serious is that Egypt is at war at the moment with ISIS in a very, very serious way. So that makes the nation unsafe, potentially, as a place for antiquities to be sent. So. Now that you have that dynamic added to the mix as well, and the possibility that objects are going to be stolen inside museums by their employees of the museums, sold on the black market, and will inevitably end up outside Egypt by illegal means, would it be a good idea to return Nefertiti's head to Egypt, even though there's a custom built room to house it and a climate controlled space, a very, very high tech? pedestal with a case over the top with all the necessary 21st century technology to protect it. If ISIS are just down the road, is that a good idea, right? So there's a lot of weighing up that needs to be done. What happens by and large is that we hear from a kind of broad spectrum of people through social media that Nefertiti's bus must be returned to Egypt. How is it possible that it's not in Egypt in the first place? Well, now that you have some background, it's easier to make an informed opinion of that statement, whether it's right or wrong. But the more that social media becomes involved in these discussions, the more it becomes a mob voice, which doesn't have an anchor in fact. So we see this throughout global politics nowadays, and this effect has filtered its way down into the discussion about restitution of objects. Um, another example, which I can give is that um, the prior, but not current, but the prior ambassador from Iraq to London um, became a friend because we organized an exhibition in his house, a collaborative exhibition between uh, the Iraqi mission to the UK and the Kurdish mission to the UK. Um, and Over the course of time, I met up with him several times at different places, uh, at a couple of events at the British Museum, for example, and on one occasion he said to me, with with great pride, and quite rightly so, um, it was right at the end of the war against ISIS, and Mosul was on the brink of being sieged uh, to remove ISIS from their last stronghold. Uh, He said to me with great pride, um, 1,300 objects from Iraq have been returned through our embassy in London to Baghdad I mean that's fantastic it's wonderful it's it warms my heart to hear this the only thing is that it's a drop in the bucket when you look at aerial photographs of the ancient sites both in Iraq and Syria where you can see thousands Mm. of little pinholes in the photographs which mark out All the places where looters sanctioned by ISIS with a rubber stamp on a piece of paper have gone and dug up anything that they can find. And if it's small enough, it gets sent illegally out of Iraq, out of Syria, and it ends up somewhere else. And there are many cases of people accumulating collections, especially since the beginning of the war with ISIS. There's been a massive flow of illegal material out of Iraq and Syria. They accumulate collections. It's highly questionable where these things came from. There are often insufficient documents. It isn't just acceptable to say, oh, my great-grandmother bought this on the streets of Baghdad in 1961. No, there has to be something credible in writing. If it doesn't exist, people shouldn't be buying it. But there are large collections, corporate collections as well, which have accumulated and then suddenly There's a serious issue and their integrity as legitimately moved objects comes into question and it all ends up in court. Those court cases are the major reason why people are aware of the idea of restitution of ancient objects back to the Middle East. So we're all familiar with the idea that during the Second World War, there was a huge amount of looting. Art changed hands all over Europe. Things were spread around all over the world, and we hear frequently about objects being returned to their owners or the families, descendants of their owners, which were looted during the occupation by Nazi Germany of Europe. So these are very, very clear-cut situations, but you cannot apply the same uh, notions and ideas and principles to individual antiquities because there's so much there, which is gray. You know, it's not black and white. And that's really what I've learned about this is that it really is not black and white. And if you take the example, like I said, of Nefertiti's bust, is it safe to even really seriously consider, even if it were illegally owned, is it legitimate to say, yes, we're gonna send this to a war zone? I mean, you have to put a, a, a pretty serious thinking cap on if you think that that's not an immediate response, if you can't reply immediately and say, well, obviously that wouldn't be shrewd. But there are examples of European countries sending objects to active war zones. I'm not going to name names, but I can tell you examples. I wish I were willing to say the names because I would like to. Um, But there is, for example, I can give you one example without stating any names, a very famous Um, ancient art museum sent objects to Afghanistan in the last several years. And there are NGOs, protection of culture, NGOs in Afghanistan, which wrote to that museum in advance and said, for the love of God, don't do this, because the country is slowly falling back into the control of the Taliban. And that has now happened. And those ancient objects are now in the possession by default, of the Taliban. So you have to be extremely careful.
0: I'm so grateful to you, Piers, for sharing all this information with us. And speaking of looting, my last question to you uh, What role does the market play in your understanding in the movement of objects which may have been looted?
1: Okay, well, there was um, a very interesting Deloitte study about how, how much illicit material is sold and moved within Europe, and how much illicit material outside of that study we know has been transported between the Middle East and Europe. That's harder to get a handle on. <clears throat> but a big a big um, accountancy firm like Deloitte, who are gonna be able to go out into the antiquities market and write up what their findings are, should be able to get a very good handle on this And they should be able to get to grips with it in a sufficient way that they can publish their findings. And we can probably accept that they are pretty accurate. I mean, governments go to the likes of Deloitte. So I think it's a credible source and we should probably take seriously what they say. One of the things that they've said is that it's extremely difficult, if not impossible, to put a figure on illegal antiquities sold within Europe. Why? Well, in part, like let's take, for example, the UK. In the UK, there are now laws which say that they're they're known as know your vendor or know your your uh, purchaser. So what they mean is, no, you have to as a as a seller of antiquities, you have to know who you're buying from. And it's up to you to do the necessary due diligence. You have to be certain. And ultimately, if it's questioned legally, you have to be able to stand up in court and show the necessary evidence. And it's the same if you're selling. Are you selling something that's legitimate? Is it legitimately in your hands? Do you have the right to sell it? Does the owner have the right to sell it? It falls, the obligation falls on the middle person, the person who's selling and the person who's selling on to a buyer and the person who's retrieving, who's buying in. Right, so it's the antiquities dealer. By and large, most of them are pretty diligent. People make mistakes, and sometimes the mistakes happen, but are totally honest. So, for example, um, my friend uh, Salomon told me that things can happen and things can be understood with greater clarity later, because sometimes documents come to light at a later date. I totally understand that as a person whose work is my art artistic practice is intensely research heavy. I can look for a very long time for a document or a little piece of information within a document and not find it. And then suddenly somebody comes to the subject with a fresh eye and locates exactly what I've been looking for. So I understand how that can happen. The real real question is that Deloitte study, does it show with real integrity, firstly, the scale of the market, And after looking at scale, in other words, what is that market worth? Then does it show down to a granular level whether or not those people are functioning in a legitimate fashion? So in terms of scale, there are huge grand estimates of what the antiquities market is believed to be worth in Europe. And it's in the many billions, right? Somewhere in between five and eight billion. OK, if you look at the number of antiquities dealers in Europe, and you look at, and the likes of Deloitte can do this on a no-names basis and in a, on a, a, a sort of confidential discussion, they can accumulate um, a sort of range of uh, incomes from these antiquity sellers. And they come back with a figure which is actually nowhere near five billion. So what that tells you is that, firstly, the market is nothing like as large as people guesstimate it to be once it's examined. So then that filters down a lot of material to a core. And that core is a number of antiquities dealers who are selling and buying smaller quantities and for small amount, amounts than people had understood or expected. The over, overblown estimates largely come from things like the very, very successful sale of an object at Christie's relatively recently, which I believe was around 12 or 14 million. And then people say, wow, the antiquities market must be worth 8 billion. You know, and they just come up with these massive figures. So when it's examined, you find it's much, much smaller. Um, Within that world, how many people in there actually really have the integrity to say, hang on a second, this thing that I'm selling, the more I look at it, the more I have academics look at it, and that's key, and I'll come back to that in a second, um, the more I'm uncertain of its origin, I'm uncertain of its age, I'm uncertain how it came to be in my hands. In many respects, the right thing to do at that moment is to either hand it back to the owner and say, I'm sorry, I just it's too much in the grey area, um, and I can't be certain of what this is, where it came from, the paperwork, et cetera, um, you know, Sorry, can't help you, but, you know, good luck with the future. Um, Alternatively, if it's something that's of serious historic significance and the antiquities dealer becomes absolutely certain that there's something wrong with it, they always have the option to go to that country's embassy and announce that they have in their possession something which they believe is wrong. Wrong being it's in the wrong country, shouldn't be here, the paperwork's incorrect. May have been forged, whatever the issue may be. And we would like to make you aware of it because we need your help and your advice. And the reason for going to them for that will be partly because they will have on their side antiquities experts who can say, I know exactly what this is. I know exactly where this came from. I can probably tell you the dig that it came out of, but I can certainly tell you that it will have been retrieved between these years and the likelihood of it coming legally to this particular source that you've described is correct or incorrect. So they can inform. The alternative to this route going to embassies is going to academics. So for example, and I think that academics have a greater role to play, to play than they do currently. How they're remunerated for this is a different matter, but, but their knowledge is exceptional. So you could say, for example, um, okay, I have an Assyrian relief, Um, I'm looking to sell it. Um, Who is there that can help me to authenticate its uh, presence in the UK? Um, How do I find the necessary supporting paperwork? Uh, And that's where academics, somebody for example who might work at the British Museum, could come into play. They give their advice to the UK government on a frequent basis anyway, so a large number of those antiquities which were returned to the Iraqi ambassador, who I'm friends with, were okayed, signed off on, in effect, by the British Museum as things which definitely should not have been in the UK and should be returned to Iraq, right? So that, that's fairly clear, you know. The academics can play an increasing role. Um, who they play the role for can be defined a little bit more clearly. Whether they play the role for government, or for individuals Um, but their knowledge is exceptional and it can often be so precise that they can say ah this thing came out of a dig organized by Layard in uh, Iraq in and then they'll name a year Um, and sometimes these things really can be tracked back that way so their information is essential. Um, I also think that it's important to understand that um, whilst many countries are enthusiastically, in the past, selling objects, they didn't always provide paperwork. So it, it divides this subject again. Egypt, many on many occasions, you would buy something in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and you'd be given the export license, you'd be given the receipt. You can ha- you can have those things in proximity to the object up until the present day. But there are also countries which never provided those things. So the necessity for an export license from that country, whether it may be, let's say, for example, Iran, where things could be purchased completely legitimately, there may not be the necessary paperwork, which would be required now. So, how do you prove that you removed it from Iran legitimately? Um, That gets very complicated. Then you also get complications with MCs, where they, without announcing, what they're going to do, or questioning, is it okay if I do this? They go to the press and they say, we've found this amazing thing. And of course, it's come from some antiquities dealer who's asked them for their help. We've found this incredible thing. Here it is. Um, We're sending it back to Iraq. It's a great victory for for Iraqi people, for Egyptian people, whoever the embassy is. Um, Some behave really impeccably. Some go completely over the line and do these types of things. So until a type of regulation comes into effect that enables sufficient examination, which enables then a decision between local authorities such as UK and Iraqi to overrule the option for an embassy to go crazy and start sending out press releases to every newspaper that will listen, you have a very difficult situation because that type of behavior stops people from approaching and saying, look, I'm an antiquities dealer, I've been given this thing, I think it's really important, I'm not certain of it do you have somebody who can come look at it? You know. So this is, a, this is spliced and diced in dozens of different ways and, and ultimately this is why it comes down to being decisions that have to be made on an individual basis so for example the Ashmolean Museum at the moment have an object, a sculpture they went to the Indian authorities off their own back nobody's said oh I think there's something wrong with this. The Ashmolean staff have done their research on this object and they've realized that there's a real possibility that it came to them through somebody who should never have owned it. So the insinuation is that there's a possibility it was stolen somewhere and that it was brought out of India illegally. So under that understanding they've gone back to the authorities in India and specifically to the museum that they believe it probably came from. And they said, look, here's this statue. Um, we think that it came from you. Uh, we think that it may have found its way by illegal uh, routes into the hands of somebody who sold it seemingly legitimately within the UK. And over the course of time, it's been gifted to the museum, it's been handed over to the museum. Here it is. It's in our collections. Tell us please what you think. Now, that approach was done with some conviction. They were, they were really confident that something had gone wrong in the process of acquiring this, and they wanted to offer it back to the museum. The museum then turned around and said, and they were not expecting this, I'll tell you, turned around and said, no, we don't think that came from here. Well, the Ashmolean had done their research, and they were very, very confident that it had. So what this means is basically that the Indian museum doesn't want to admit that something's been stolen from them right? So what do you do at that stage? An arrangement of some form has to be developed. Maybe it's a sharing agreement, yeah? Maybe it's that the Ashmolean legitimately owns it today, but something illegitimate happened along the way, and if the museum went to admit to it, well, you find a middle ground, you know? Um, another similarly complicated uh, um discussion which is happening at the moment is in relation to Benin bronzes. There is a lot of public outcry in the direction predominantly of the British Museum saying that important bronzes made in Benin should be sent back to Benin. Well again I'm not going to name names but I've been told by somebody very high up within the British Museum that Benin authorities who would be the recipients of these objects do not want them sent to Benin. They're absolutely adamant that they should not be sent there. And it's a matter of storage, uh, management of them, taking care of them in the right way, handling in the right way, et cetera, and potentially even safety, you know, how do you protect them sufficiently? So that discussion is not in the public domain. So all that we are hearing in relation to Benin bronzes is send them back, send them back, how deplorable that they're in England. The colonial lawfuls did this thing. We have to put it right. But there's no scratching below the surface. And as soon as you cut below the surface, this is the territory that you find you're in. Yeah. So it is extremely complicated.
0: Uh, All of this is so important, Piers. What kind of conclusion would you like to draw as we are coming to an end of our conversation today? And, uh, you know, as you were saying, and I absolutely agree, this matter is never black and white and is very complicated. But perhaps you could share your thoughts on how these issues could be resolved or at least where do we push in order to make some sort of progress in this matter?
1: You know, in travelling to Iraq in order to make the works of art which I produce, uh, I've learned quite a bit about how ISIS functioned. Um, Some of it just from reading, some of it from talking to local people, especially in Mosul. And one of the things that I've learned is that um, the extent of ISIS looting in Iraq was spectacular. It was really off the register. If things were small and could be transported easily, they were generally shipped out of the country and sold. I think that social media, again, has a huge question to answer in relation to this, because until very, very recently you could log on to Facebook and you could buy directly through Facebook stolen antiquities which were dug up on the ground in Iraq and Syria. And quite often the photographs which were posted on Facebook included in the background a shot of the metal detector and the hole which the object came out of. So it doesn't get more brazen than that. And if you're dealing with spec, uh, you know, really extraordinary couple of thousand years old, say, cuneiform tablets, which tell something of the way of life at that time, which uh, perhaps people are not aware of, that's new information into the public domain. Um, or say a very special gold object, something like a crown, which likes of which have been sold through facebook from the middle east in the territories occupied at the time by isis um, you have to wonder if the trade is that open and brazen how does this really get released? so gold is a little bit uh, easier a subject to attend to in this regard because by and large gold objects and coins are usually melted down and then they're completely anonymous. It becomes a bar and it's by weight, etc. So gold coins often don't have a value higher than, especially from the Middle East, higher than um, bullion. It's not always the case, but often. Um, necklaces, bracelets, rings especially, that's the case. Um, how do you regulate that? Uh, If you have an organization like ISIS, which is rubber stamping pieces of paper and handing them out to anybody who wants to go and dig. um, And these are often people who have nothing, no money, and they're in desperate straits. And this is something that they can suddenly do. And there's an ancient site nearby in Iraq. There's pretty much an ancient ancient site nearby, no matter where you are. People are going to do it. So how do you prevent it? You incentivize people by helping them to find an income, which then causes them not to need to go and dig up ancient sites, right? But the ideology and narratives of ISIS were such that actually it was in their interests to do this looting for a number of reasons. Um, And so they did. And so the scale of what has arrived into Europe predominantly under ISIS, spectacular and it's clear to see from the number of objects that the Iraq MC in the UK was returning uh, to Baghdad Um, the organization that goes on behind this is is really impressive it's not entirely dissimilar to something like the drugs trade in that people learn very quickly how to move these things without them being spotted they learn how to disguise them um, human movement of of, uh, you know by foot across borders is often utilized and people carry things in amongst their own possessions because they know that when they get to X, Y, and Z cities, they're going to be able to sell it for something, you know? So it's a, it's a sort of terrible storm of uh, a combination of the movement of mass migration of people away from war zones, um, especially where there are ancient sites, uh, demand from people in Western nations, um, A global demand for gold. Uh, Whichever form it's in, it doesn't matter, it can be made into a gold bar. Um, How do you regulate these things? Well, by by, uh, generating peace. That's how. That's really the only way. It's education, and education ultimately prevents people from doing extremist things. And education also helps people to understand why taking a shovel to an ancient site not shrewd for the longevity of the heritage of that nation and for the people who are going to follow after you generations later. So for me personally I think a lot of this comes down to education or failures of education Um, but there are of course areas in which governments have to step in and say okay we're gonna have to regulate the process of determining when something comes into question what is done and what isn't. At the moment it seems a lot of governments are simply ring fencing uh, the objects which they're concerned about being uh, sent back to countries outside their borders uh, by creating new laws. So, for example, there's a law in Germany that says you cannot move uh, ancient objects across the, uh, I believe they're called county lines or equivalent of county lines. So, from, say, Westphalia to somewhere else. Um, And and that's also a very effective way to prevent, for example, Nefertiti's head from leaving Berlin because it's going to have to cross over some line in order to get to the necessary airport from which it can be flown. And if the uh, export license for the object, the original export license for the object, say it's from Egypt in this example, isn't present, it's illegal to move that thing across that county line. So countries are creating these laws to prevent restitution of objects in their uh, their museums and their institutions instead of examining what these objects are on an individual basis and trying to determine actually whether they should be holding them in the first place. And that's, I think, where I would like to end my spiel. <laughs> <laughs> A
0: great note to finish on, and I couldn't agree more with you. In the end, it all comes down to education. Thank you so much, Piers, again for this crucial discussion. We all hope to see you back at Zeitgeist 19 really soon.